Are you concerned about the state of education? Professor and social commentator Dr. Scott Masson joins me to explore how we got here and what we should do about it. Welcome to Thinking Biblically. My name is Alan Gilman. Thinking Biblically is a podcast dedicated to exploring how all of Scripture speaks to all of life. Before I introduce this week's guest, I'd like to remind everyone to please subscribe, to, to subscribe, share, and like. This week, I'm very happy to have with us Dr. Scott Masson. Uh, Scott is an associate professor of English literature and head of the English department at Tyndale University in Toronto. His subjects include the literature of the Greco-Roman period, the Bible as literature, Shakespeare, Milton, 17th century literature, romantic literature, the works of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, science fiction, practical criticism, and classical and contemporary literary theory. Scott grew up in London, Ontario. After studying classical languages in Germany, he went on to receive a PhD in English Literary Studies from the University of Durham in the UK. His interest led him to pursue the restoration of classical education in Canada, including the founding of Westminster Classical Christian Academy in Toronto. As a tenured professor, former pastor, conference and campus speaker, and proud member of the Upper Mohawk, Upper Mohawk Band in Canada. Scott has lectured and written on a wide variety of topics. Some of his lectures and talks can be found on his YouTube channel, and I'll provide the link to that in the description. Scott is the author of Romanticism, Hermeneutics, and the Crisis of the Human Sciences, available on Amazon. He is married and has two children. Scott, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. It's a pleasure to be on here. So, um, member of the Upper Mohawk Band, would you mind taking a moment explaining what that's about? Sure. Um, my mother was, uh, unbeknownst to her, um, adopted as a baby by her, uh, what she thought were her parents, uh, until they uh, passed away, and at which point she found in her mother's effects um some sort of note i don't know what it was that indicated that she'd been adopted and she was surprised at this her parents hadn't told her and i think her mother had indicated something of that sort to her um just not long before that but it wasn't you know it was just sort of mentioned she stored it away in her memory and suddenly oh my goodness and so she hired a detective and the detective found out that she had in fact been adopted that and she asked the detective to find her mother, whom she did, and found out that she was her mother was Mohawk, and therefore that I am. So that I found that out when I was in my mid twenties. Um, what so kind of impact did that have on your life? Well, you can. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it clearly from uh, developmentally, um, not much. I was already. Uh, at that point, I was in Europe, I was in Germany by the time I found out. I think I might even have been close to leaving Germany. I might have been in the UK, somewhere in that range. I think I probably, actually, I was probably in, in England at that point. And, um, and so I was already uh, mature in, in, by many standards. I mean, some would have disputed that, but uh, certainly not at a stage where it would have caused me a, a real change. And it was my mother that was more affected by it, of course. And um, for me, it just raised the question of how my experience, my mother's experience related to the general experiences of Native peoples in Canada, and how many people would be given away for adoption or, uh, or were taken away. My, my mother informed me from her relatives that, uh, I don't know if it was a great-grandfather, but uh, they were in this, the uh, school in Brantford. Uh, 12 of them, it was a residential school, they were taken away. And all 12 of them ran away from the school. <clears throat> and um, I, I, I don't know, but I wonder whether that was a reason why my mother was given away. I don't know what that reason was, and it was never disclosed to her by her birth mother. So It's, it's amazing how we could grow up thinking that you're one we thing have and then one another, kind of history yeah. when actually the reality is some other kind of history. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, we could 
some of us that like to talk on Bible themes uh, could. Yeah, no, I know. Absolutely. Find, yeah. Well, you know where I'm going with that. I do. Uh, we're yeah. born into the world. We think many of us were not raised with a uh, an idea that that God exists at all. We don't really understand what our origins are, let alone what our destiny can be. Right. And uh, so um, the little bit I read up on you, uh, uh, Scott, it, it seems that your, your spiritual discovery, too, is something that happened later on. Around the same time, actually. Yeah, could you share a little bit about what that was about? Yeah, so it was between my master's and my PhD. In, in Durham, and um, I'm not sure exactly when I found out that I was uh, therefore stayed as Mohawk, but it was it was within that rough time range. And I think that I had become a Christian by that point. So I think that mattered more to me than uh, than this. Oh, okay. That's I, I, I have native blood. Okay, well, that's interesting. But what do I do with that? And I being so far away from home, I, I didn't do much with it aside from registering my surprise and and think about it a bit but yeah of course it fits in with biblical themes and about having a being in an adopted family uh which all christians are so it didn't really throw me in that sense but it did make me wonder a little bit about what that might mean uh, but as far as my own identity there as a christian yeah between my masters and phd in that summer uh heard a conversation in a pub between a Christian and some atheist professors and found myself on side of the Christian uh, who was arguing her case quite well, I thought, and, and she invited me to her church uh, after that. And uh, I had actually gone back to study English literature because I had found Christ in literature. And uh, oddly enough, I didn't go to church to find out more about Jesus, I went to literature where I found him more profoundly testified to than I had in my United Church upbringing. So it sounds a little bit odd, but it, it, from my vantage point, it made sense at the time. I now think it's almost hilarious. But um, well, aren't I, you good? Aren't you in good stead with uh, another famous English uh, professor? Who, oh, C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. A little bit, yeah, yeah. In terms of the age range, I guess I'm in England. And where our paths diverge, I mean, diverge in many areas, but uh, I wanted to be a medievalist. That's why I was in Germany before this. I had, at the conclusion of my undergrad studies, I had gone to uh, U of T, uh, Pontifical Institute of Medieval Studies, the Medieval Institute and so forth, and asked them what I needed to do to be a medievalist. And they said, you, you need languages. You really need, you need German, you need French, you need Latin. And I thought, okay. So I went to Germany to uh, work on my languages, and I did that for three years, and then left to go to England to be a medieval Renaissance-type C.S. Lewis, if you will, following his footsteps. Um, I didn't really make, I hadn't read his Christian works, by the way. I read him as a literary theorist. So I'd, I'd read his work as a medieval scholar and uh, found that they didn't offer any of the courses that I thought I was going to go take. The the medieval professor was on uh, a sabbatical somebody else i think had a mat leave another person had a breakdown i don't know they didn't offer any of the courses i wanted to take so i ended up being pushed into the enlightenment romantic period which i didn't want to study um so anyway but uh, looking backwards i guess god god wanted me in that area so, well but how did you find jesus in in literature uh, well, the first thing I read as uh, an undergrad was Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, which is a story of one of the Knights of the Round Table in King Arthur's court. It's a fantastical story. And uh, he is the paragon of Christian virtue, uh, or is supposed to be. And he faces this monstrous character who ends up uh, being more chivalrous than Gowan himself. And he ends up failing in his... Uh, quest to be the perfect Christian knight. And with it, the kingdom of King Arthur is undermined, really. That's one of the lessons of the Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. But I just found it uh, fascinating, uh, to the ideal there. And then we went and went, went and read Paradise Lost right after that. And I found that just compelling. I, I, I'd, I'd read Genesis uh, 
the story, but I'd read it um, the way most people say they've read it. They zipped over it and took a few minutes to read it, read it, and then said that they'd read it, but they hadn't really and you know digested the specifics of the details, which are really important. Milton's whole account in Paradise Lost, this grand epic, um, is really explode or blowing up those first three chapters and taking 12 books to do it. And I found it, as I say, absolutely compelling. And I was convinced that there was something there that I could not dismiss uh, as just a story. I didn't think it was. In fact, I thought there was profound truth in it. And that motivated me in first year. I didn't do very well in first year, but it motivated me to push myself to understand what I did not understand. And uh, all my studies pushed in that direction thereafter. So uh, what I find fascinating with this is is you were exploring um, well, the first book, book you mentioned referred to King Arthur, that's pure fiction. Yep. Paradise Lost is Lost is based on scripture, but much of the the elaboration is made up in the author's mind. You said you called found this compelling, but you're in a fictional world. How how does fiction lead you to truth about God in life? Well, I don't use the word fiction here only because the word fiction is popularly used to uh, distinguish itself from fact. So fictional accounts are not true and factual accounts are true. Um, the way I would see it is that I'm being given a, uh, a story, a narrative account of certain things. And I don't think that narratives and the form of a narrative preclude something being true. Um, in fact, I think that uh, most of the things that we hold to be true are not presented in the empiricist paradigm of scientific research where you can uh, repeat the experiment in your own mind. Anything that's happened in previous history, you can't repeat that. And uh, it comes to us in the form of, of stories often. And so I, I didn't see it as fictional. I mean, I'm not even going to deal with the question of whether King Arthur was a, a real figure. Some people think he is, actually. Um, or a composite of, of various kings. Um, Milton's account in Paradise Lost is a is a narrative poem uh, based on the models of the epic that he inherited from his predecessors. And they, let's say Homer or Virgil, were presenting truths so important that they put it into uh, poetry. And that that so that's for us. We would say, well, they're now they are putting it in a form. And when I say us those of us who've been on this side of the enlightenment and the scientific uh, revolution, uh, they put it in a form where it's no longer true, but it's a, it's a nice story. And they would see it the opposite way. We've put it in a memorable fashion uh, so that it can be learned and known and recited verbatim. Uh, that's the way they put something that was so true. It was worthy of memory. Right. And, Am I, would I be right to say that reality is best presented in narrative form anyway to, to help I, I people so. grasp with the realities of life? We need narrative, not just a list of principles and this sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a place for both. Obviously, it doesn't one does not need to forbid the other, and that's the thing that I'm taking exception to when we talk about fiction versus fact, is the idea that if you are presenting it in a fictional form or a story form or a poetic form, that you are thereby rendering it in the form where we're not really holding it to be credible or true or important. Uh, when historically speaking, and actually even in terms of mnemonics, that is to memorize things, to commit them to memory, to make them comprehensible, we actually do want to put them in those forms. That's why we watch uh, stories in movies and are compelled by good stories. It becomes instantly memorable. People will remember the scenes from their favorite films, and they'll even be able to recite the dialogue back and forth. If it's a good story, they do that, and they've committed it to memory because it was important to them. Does that mean that it's not true? No, it, it, it's there's something profoundly true to them about it, and that's why they have uh, taken the time uh, to memorize it. And even maybe they didn't even need to do that because it was so 
powerful and compelling that they instantly remembered the lines. And did you see the look on it? And they, that the whole scene has been captured for them. No, I, so I really reject that idea that uh, we can, you know, boil things down to a point by point PowerPoint version of the truth. I don't think, and, and certainly that's not how scripture presents it. Do you think life itself is a story? I think it is to be, it can be understood as a as a story. Um, but I'm I'm a little hesitant on it only insofar as, um, again, on in the language of many postmodernists that they just mean that uh, you know they're all competing stories and there's none that are there's no true story within the stories and and that I would strongly dispute. Um, so but there so there is a I, true story. Yes, and and again, that was you mentioned C.S. Lewis. That was the thing that uh, convinced him uh, and moved him from being a, th a theist to to a Christian is the idea that Christianity was a true myth. He loved the old myths. They, he noted certain similarities between Christianity and those of Norse mythology or Greek or pagan, any sort of pagan mythology. All sorts of resemblances. I mean, if you have an attentive. Uh, ear and and know and know the literature, you will spot the resemblances. And he just thought this was a variation on it. And that was what was, you know, presented to him as a hypothesis. What if Christianity is actually a true myth and all the other myths are are echoes of it and and, and to some degree debased echoes. They're missing something of the fullness that's here in this story. And the one thing that they're missing above all is that this one actually came true. Uh, the god man in these stories of the pagan authors actually did take on human flesh. He did walk the earth. He was he was crucified bodily. He was raised bodily. I mean, and this was very important to the authors to to emphasize that in a way that's not true of narrative. There, it defies narrative conventions. They're really, really interested in the forensic details of the story to show that they were eyewitnesses of the account, and that's not true of narratives when they go there they've they've moved into this is an eyewitness true account almost as if it were written by somebody who wanted to put the evidence in front of us and, yeah, and so that's but, compelling and interesting yeah to me. but but scott and i know i'm challenging the a, a, a literature Good. professor here but um so you're on the witness stand not necessarily yes. you a person's on the witness stand yes. and the the attorney says mr mrs smith um, could you please tell us what happened the night of July 5th, 2021? And the person then tells the story of what happened. Mm -hmm. So much of the way we talk about life is through story. You know, I asked, mm -hmm. I asked you about your indigenous background. And that right. was, that's quite a, you just gave us little snippets of a very dramatic story that actually reveal to you your own personal origins that you grew up believing a, something totally different. And then you came into connection with a whole other story, your narrative, mm -hmm. your, your narrative got changed by the truth. But you know, we all enter in the world believing a particular story about ourselves about life. And then hopefully we're being confronted by the truth, which is the true narrative of life. And then we have a choice before us. Are we going to live accordingly, according to the true narrative, or do we prefer false narrative? Well, that's a good point. And how would you know uh, or be able to distinguish the true and the false narrative anyway? Um, it, and, and what would be the standard of or the criteria of, of truth there? Um, in That's those a big question. Competing stories, like how how would you know that one was true, or by what standard would you consider this one to be true and this one to be false? And the postmoderns, the postmoderns, yeah, it's whatever I want to believe. Right, you can't. That's right, and that's what I'm. That's what I'm disputing. The, that the idea that there isn't a a a true uh, version of it, but there are competing versions, and there's just the one that I like to tell about myself, and I can change what that is in accordance with how I perceive myself. Um, and I can express that. And you simply have to accept it as as if it were true, because I believe it so. And I don't know why that they impose that grid upon us that I that you have to uh, buy into whatever I say, just because I say it, that seems to me an extraordinary 
uh, conclusion. It does not follow from their own premises. <laughs> so if everything goes, then why can't I disbelieve the person who gives me a new narrative for themselves? Why is that not open to me? Um, uh, I think we could get into a different conversation about True. that. But 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 you had reason, like you had reason to believe that your mother's story of her investigation is a true story. It's not all made up. I did. Yeah. 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 And, and one of the reasons is because her mother had said something to her before she died. It, it was only hinted at. And then she found official records that suggested, I mean, a birth certificate and so forth. And she then had to find who this birth mother was and hired a private investigator, et cetera. And that seemed to me plausible. And it seemed to her plausible, despite the fact that she had grown up not knowing anything about this person in the past, and I, as her son, knew nothing about it. But and yet, yet I accepted it as true. That's correct, right? Yeah. And there, and for good reasons. Um, and there's all so. sorts of things that that um, contribute to making it a, a you know, deciding whether something is actually true or not. And yep. course, today we're being um, encouraged just to go by feelings, yeah. which is which is a really bad. Um, very bad <laughs> very bad basis of of uh and and even and and i think you will may we can get into some of this um the pure sciences the way life gets reduced to you know tiny little bits of things don't really give us an understanding of the truth you know back to c.s lewis again um, he says something about um is it's a kissing i think it is if you think about how maybe you know better than me there, there he has a line about analyzing a kiss you know as soon as you begin to analyze the kiss it's no longer a kiss that there's a reality in in that kind of experience that is true that can't be reduced to scientific principles even yeah. though you've got some of these science scientists will talk about the neurons in your brain and the chemicals and what's being fired but if you describe romance in those terms it's not romance anymore no you've taken all the romance out yeah. of it and that romance is a real is a real thing is a real thing yeah and testified to throughout uh, every culture and in their greatest literature is as well of course and yeah he makes the same point in the silver chair uh where the sun uh there's a witch i don't know if you recall that i love the that book trapped them under blow and 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 she's trying to convince them that the world that they've departed from to go underground is not real that's not the real world it's just a flaming ball of gas and um the spell is broken when Gosh, what's his name? Yeah, Puddleglum. Um, Puddleglum. Puddle she had puts unleashed this 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 uh, toxin <laughs> into the air. This toxin, <laughs> which was in the air, that was putting them to sleep, soporific, and she was lulling yeah. them into it. And that's not a real world, and so forth. And yes, and the experience of pain uh, breaks the breaks the spell on him. Uh, and they note that even in their own world, it's not true that the sun is a flaming ball of gas. That does not. Although that statement is accurate, it is not comprehensive enough to account for what a son is. Yeah, so, so I have an actually. I, think, I have an, that, I love that book. Uh, I do too. One of my one of my favorites. Um, people out there, I still meet people who've never read the Narnia Chronicles at all. Um, a lot of people get tripped up because they're children's books. I read um, it only for as an adult for the yeah, first time. Yeah, me too. I didn't know anything about them as as a kid. Um, <laughs> Uh, but anyway, if you haven't read them, folks, you, you, you need to read those books. Read them, my recommendation, read them according to the publication date, not according to the way they're grouped in the box sets. Um, but anyway, um, in in that interchange where Puddleglum puts his webbed foot on the fire that allows him to think clear-headed, he says something that I'm troubled about. And what it is, is he basically says, like, I don't care if what I think is fantasy, I prefer my I will prefer my fake world to your real world any day. And I, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that, that um, C.S. Lewis, of course, is, seems to be making uh, the case. And I think he says this sort of thing that there's a sense in which the, the biblical view of life is so true. It's, it's preferable, even if it's not true sort of thing. It, so the, the risk of trusting it is, is, is lessened because it's still the best version of life possible, whether it's objectively true or not. One of my problems with that statement, and maybe I'm getting it wrong, uh, is Paul says that if, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, we are the most pitied of, of people. 
that there is an objective truth that this is all about. It, it, it still has to be... Um, has to be founded upon something that's objectively true and not yes. just some great grand idea. That's one of yeah. my worries. Like with, with Jordan Peterson in in the route that he's going, that Christianity's just become this fantastic thought and maybe it was given by God if he ever gets that sorted out. But it's not just because it's wonderful thought, it's because it actually is true. Are you, do you follow me on that? I do follow you, but I think you're misreading him there. I don't think Podoglom is sta- is saying that uh, he doesn't care if it's false because he prefers that subjective fantasy to the current reality. I think he's speaking with irony. She's saying okay. that it's false, but he's saying, I'll take the falsehood rather than this. Oh, uh, so I th- I'll take the falsehood, falsehood quote-unquote right. kind of thing? Correct. That, I think he's speaking with irony there. I'll have to find him and talk to him and ask him. <laughs> yes, and well, that's how I I read it immediately because he's he's okay. saying nonsense, 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 and you know that's this is the real world. Well, I'll take that you know false world any day over this, and he, so he's not saying I would rather be lost in the mire of subjectivism and my projection of what I would like the the reality to be. He's saying rather the opposite. You are saying this but I don't believe you. And, and he's willing to put it to the test by putting his foot in the fire. Right. So that's, that's okay. the, that's the, that's the key point there. Okay. So what was it that got you? I don't think you explained that. So you said you found Jesus in literature, but what was, was there an aha that went, mm, there's something about this that is real. Um, well, is there an aha moment? I, there are a lot of aha, aha moments. One of them was that I, and I don't think, so there isn't one, I don't think, because I can list them and I can't think of one immediately. So that's why I say that. Um, I found the, the, the take or the uh, presentation of Christianity in the academy, and I was there undergrad in the 1980s and 90s and so forth, uh, was, uh, factually inaccurate uncharitable in its reading to put it mildly but to be uncharitable i i think that under vastly understates what i had seen there um i had seen on the contrary the evidence that christianity had a profoundly humane effect for all of the i mean and this this just became more and more convincing to me as i after i became a christian and looked at it in that way. And I thought, I mean, really, do you believe this? And you have to struggle with it then. Um, when you see the effect of Christianity on cultures uh, in in some ways affirmed by the ways in which we see the violation of Christian tenets as Christians, we talk about them. We are perfectly willing to admit that this is an atrocity committed by Christians. But we still call it atrocity. But again, by what standard is it an atrocity? If every if every culture oppresses those that oppose it, uh, the people in power, why is it that? And it seems to me almost uniquely in Christian in a Christian culture, we accept that that is a a true and accurate representation of the past. Because I can tell you in in my reading of of other cultures, the the min- the oppressed minorities don't get to uh, express that opinion, and it's it's eradicated from their history. It's not preserved in their cultural memory. So, so the apostles themselves, if they are taken to be the um, either the writers or those uh, for whom the gospel accounts were written, to bolster the position of the early church leaders, then you could hardly have done a worse job than <laughs> the gospel accounts give us or that of the book of acts because really the leaders of the early church are presented as fatally flawed i mean terrible they they're com- they commit the worst uh betrayals they all deny him um to a man even the foremost amongst them peter who's later called a pillar of the church i mean he is the rock on which the church is built i mean what an ironic statement uh, that is not the narrative that one presents of oneself if you are trying to bolster your own status. I mean, take a look at our own country. Do you think that the prime minister of this country is trying to allow the media 
to present him warts and all, or is he trying to present himself as blameless, more or less, and morally, you know, worthy of approbation and so forth? And is he trying to stifle dissent on that? And the answer is, we we can see that, and that's the case in every country. They don't. They want good publicity. They don't want the bad publicity. Right, that, so it's not saying anything particular about Trudeau even to say that he doesn't like the bad publicity, but if this is the document written by these individuals to promote their their case, then why on earth would they present their themselves so badly in it? And I found that Christians will do this of their own history, and again, where why would they do such a thing? Well, out of a commitment to the truth, and and I see that, and so the Enlightenment take on what the Christians did. Uh, I th I thought it's as I say it's not just charitable it's just mendacious, it's 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 flatly wrong and they are making they're lying, and I found Lewis's as a scholar admirable in his recovery to some degree of the medieval mindset and how profoundly intellectual that era was, um, how committed to the truth and reasoning they were. You know, the portrait of the Enlightenment is this the Dark Ages and people are believing in witchcraft and magic. And Lewis says, well, actually, magic doesn't really appear as a concern until the scientific era. And it actually seems to arise concurrent with it. And I thought that is extraordinary. Um, not before the, you know, the Royal Society, but around the time of Macbeth. You know, or in the middle of the Elizabethan period. This isn't the this isn't the medieval period. This is the Renaissance. This is the you know the the cream of the crop as far as uh, Western culture goes. That that's when magic suddenly becomes of great interest. Um, yeah. That's so that, again, and and that I could. That's just one instance. You could talk about uh, right. We might be back there. Et You go on and on. We're basically back there again. We're back there again. Yeah, yes, yeah. how the church but, did and the residential yeah. schools. And we can go on on. I can go on and on about the misrepresentations of that as well. Right. It's, there's one of the things that troubles me about the. Um, the way the past is criticized today is there's no redemptive element to it whatsoever. It's just shame, 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 shame. But all the way through the Bible, not just the Gospels and Acts and so on, that whole uh, Hebrew prophetic tradition that critiques um, human behavior, government, society, but with a call to goodness, to a call to repentance, to a call to restoration, uh, to a call to know God, to a, you know, call to goodness is is really wonderful, and we see it all the way through the Bible, and and you're you seem to be saying that when we look at 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 Christian literature, we see that same sort of redemptive critique of life, and there's something, and you used the word compelling early earlier on. There's something compelling from I guess what we can call that that stark honesty. That ability to look at things as they really are, to respond to them in the way that we should, to call people to to build from you know from what's gone wrong, and then to yeah. invite and and, it's, and we see this more in the, in the New Testament. Then to invite everybody to be part of this great re redemption project. There's nothing yeah. like it, as from what yeah. we can find. There's nothing like it in the world. Nothing like it in history. Right. So. So as literature, there's nothing like it. Um, in terms of um, historical accounts, there's nothing like it. It's 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 real to life, and it the the life to which it was most real was my own. So that was the second thing. I I was convinced the academy had given Christianity a very short shrift and a very unfair take, and that that was not. Uh, entirely a new thing, but it, it was growing more and more pronounced. There was an animus against Christian. Uh, the Christian history of uh, our past, and it was being pushed more and more strongly, and in directions that seemed more and more absurd to me. But also the the other thing that these stories then convinced me of was my own sin, and, and so, so the reality. It, it, so it exposed the hypocrites, as Jesus calls the Pharisees. You you hypocrites, you actors. You know you're the religious leaders, and. Um, and I was very well aware of other people's hypocrisy, and and it came to me that I I too was a hypocrite, as far as blaming others for things that I myself was equally guilty of. Maybe in a different way, whatever. But given the situation, would I have acted any differently in that situation? Well, not on based on past form, no, <laughs> because I have done lesser instances of that because I've. 
been a teenager and I'm in my early 20s. I haven't had opportunity yet, but watch out. We know where this is going with opportunity. That's how it goes. And, and so that that to me was maybe that's the aha moment is when those stories, which I think are true, realistic, accurate, then it says, okay, how about the application of those stories to you, Mr. Masson? And I thought, guilty as charged. And that's a huge thing that's that's missing today with all this finger pointing and, and yep. without pointing the finger back at us, that famous thing of when you point your finger at someone, there's three pointing back at you. Right. And and yep. that is gone. That's gone from the media and from journalism. There's no self-reflection. There's just blame yep. and shame. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so sp speaking of what's happening today, so what's gone wrong with education? Like what's what's happened to how our children have been educated over the past? I don't know when you wanted, how far you want to take it back. I don't know if there was a time when things were really, really good in terms of educating our children, but I know you're concerned about this. So what's gone wrong? I'm, yeah, I'm very concerned about it because I've seen as a professional educator, um, the decline in education. I've heard other people, I heard people talk about this when I was being educated, they talked about the decline as well. So when did that begin? Well, I don't know, maybe in the fall. Um, but I do think there have been better forms of education in the past than we currently have. Uh, the paradigm for education that we ha currently have uh, doesn't seem to me to hold much water and it has departed from the classical model of education, which would have governed um, education from the ancient world all the way up until probably the 20th century, really. Um, and, and it only slowly started to be replaced with a, a progressive paradigm. Famous uh, figures like uh, Horace Mann and uh, John Dewey uh, point, pointing education towards the future rather than the recovery of the past and living in a, in a continuum with other human beings benefiting from their narratives, benefiting from the study of human history, uh, history, which is the venue for God's providence to be played out. We now don't look to history, historical precedent, historical example, historical figures, because we're really only interested in what's coming forward and we're chiefly interested in ourselves. And this is one of the things that is the central uh, focus of modern education is, is, is me and what I want and who I am and my self-identification. It seems to me like the, like the, the whole, whole gender identity project is almost an analogy for the educational path. You, you, who are you going to become? That's what it really is all about. It's not, and, and so it's, it's very, very narcissistic uh, and it's incul inculcating narcissism and, and, a, and a forgetfulness of the past, a willful forgetfulness of the past. Let's not look at what happened in the past except with a few, uh, I would say, highly selective instances where we can disparage those that went before us. But now let's look away from that and let's talk about how we're going to build for a better future. And they do this very quickly with no, with no study, with no criticism, with no, as you said, no charitable lens. There's no, um, no gracious, redemptive attempt to engage with the, with our forebears as well. There's a, a loathing and a self-loathing. And this was the third thing that convinced me uh, as a Christian as well. I noticed that for all of their attempts to abandon religion, they then just pursued different forms of it and a politics of guilt and pity and shame, uh, which was true of all pagan religions as well. Um, and, and, so, and therefore they'd be seeking scapegoats uh, rather than accepting Christ's atonement for sin, they'd be looking for other people to bear sins, and they, these would be identity groups. So now we've gone back to tribalism, uh, which I think denies the one of the basic things and one of the great inheritance of Christianity, which is that each person bears the image of God, and each person therefore deserves to be treated with respect and deserves to be educated, and, and that is their inheritance. And that would have been our inheritance. We moved away from that. What what a travesty! So I'm not I'm not against uh, what a, any group receiving a good education. I am against them being educated as a group and not as a person, which is a theological category. But I've noticed that uh, this educational 
decline has been taking place over a long period of time. And it would, I don't want to get it caught up in the details here. That would be for another situation. But it seems to me that there is an, an urgent need to recover Christian education. It is an imperative uh, recognized in the early church uh, and which would have marked, uh, well, Judaism as well. It's in the Shema uh, of uh, Deuteronomy 6, Shema O Israel, you know, hear the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. And you, what does it then say here to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, who said that was the greatest commandment? Who said that? Jesus, what was he quoting? He was quoting the Shema. Okay, whoa. And what is he? What does the Shema deal with? Yes, it is with loving God, but it's about, it, the context is of teaching your children. Okay, so why do we talk about the two great commandments and we're going to love God and we're going to love our neighbor, but then divorce it from education, which is what the Shema is. It's about teaching your children and then yeah. all the venues in which it presents that, you know, in the frontlets between your eyes. So it's it, it, the way I take that, it's about your mind, it's on your wrist. So it's it's your actions, it's on your, your door frame. So it's the... Uh, your private sphere, your home, and then it's on the ga city gate, so it's the civic sphere. In other words, it's everything. But note that right, it's very right. specifically there. That's there, my there, take on it. Yes, uh, just so that people don't miss it. When you were talking about Deuteronomy 3, uh, six. 6, rather, Deuteronomy 6, <clears throat> about the hero Israel, the Lord, God, Lord our God, the Lord is one, as you're saying, it goes on to love the Lord your God with thy heart, and then it says, and you shall teach these to your children. Yes. Um, and you were talking about how it's a disaster to to divorce uh, the commandments of God from our obligation to pass it on to our children. Obligation which, it is what it is as well. That's yeah. the right word. Yeah. And of course, in the, in the Jewish tradition, it's the passing on of the stories of our history, of our, of our, of our God-given history and all that that entails. And that takes us back to the, the need to self-criticize and to learn and to repent and to build and to reconcile and all those things. Uh, it's not just about the learning of facts. That's yes, why loving to, God, and, to love and to God. lament and to rejoice. Like, I yep. mean, we have Psalms that express all yep. of those emotions appropriate to those situations as well. Yep. Uh, we have all form. I talked about narrative as the primary form of biblical writing, but we also have other genres of literature as well. We have satire, we have wisdom literature, we have poetry, we have love poetry, we have epic, uh, we have forms of tragedy. Um, all manner of, of literary forms are are embedded in in scriptural mm -hmm. uh, in the scriptures, and that and the composite of all of these books from different ages, different authors, entails there's a unity to them as well, and a, a very interesting hermeneutic way of reading it in connection with the center central focus of scripture, who's Jesus Himself. But but in terms of Christian education, yes, well, Christian education where it does happen uh, in the 19th century. Are we Probably. talking just about Christian education or education in general? Well, I can talk about both, but I, and and I'll happily do that because I think anything other than Christian education isn't education. I, I'm going to go out on a far limb there and say that because because Christian education is the education in the truth because Jesus Himself is the truth. He points us to the truth. His story is our story. Our stories are wrapped up in His stories, whether we assent to it or not. Uh, whether we do or not, we will glorify him, by the way, whether we're going to do so to our own uh, damnation or whether we're going to do so to our own uh, praise and adoption as children. That's our choice, but we will still glorify him in his, in his uh, reign and rule. And I think education became Christian. So the classical method of the pagan world was taken up by Christians and adopted and adapted and changed uh, so that it became perfected. Look, the university is a medieval Christian institution, did not exist in the ancient world. If you listen to our contemporaries, even Jordan Peterson, you would never know that the university only became what it is when Christians um, used it to explore the um, fascinating and quite frankly, otherwise impenetrable connections uh, between number and word and the connections between the uh, whether God is uh, to be understood in terms of nominalism or realism. There's a debate in the early university. How, how is God to be understood? Is it understood just simply by the by words? 
and names or do we have purchase on an ultimate reality behind that? Well, this is an important intellectual debate. Which one is um, which? Nominalism, these two things you mentioned. Which I think realism myself. I, I don't think nominalism. I, I mean, I think there's something to be said on both sides. But I think when we use words, we are not just using narratives uh, or our subjective takes on things, but they are, there is a reality to which our words grasp hold of so that our knowledge is, while not uh, comprehensive, it is adequate and it is real. So when we call God our Father, it's because it's real. Be yes. Yeah, yeah. Something I want to go back. But there's a sense. There's a sense in which it is accommodationist language as well. But there is a sense still in which it is real. Yeah, we're, we're using language to try our best to represent that which actually ex actually exists. And it does, though. It's not just that we're trying our best. It also does. There is a sense that is more real. Uh, when we call God our father, then it is even of our human fathers, not that God denies that, that we have human fathers, but he says this is even more so. So something I, wa I wanted to go back back to, uh, was, I, I do a lot of thinking about how did we get here? The state that we're in, there's there's things going on, uh, government overreach, um, yes. the whole postmodern thing, uh, yes. you could be whatever you want to be, like, where are the actual roots of these things? And, and it seems to me, and I've heard different people attempt to talk about some of this, but it seems to me they don't want to go f back far enough in the way that we've been influenced in how to think to see where we went wrong. And I, while you were talking about, when you were uh, talking earlier um, uh, about um, some of these early people that you think, uh, like Thomas Mann, that influenced modern education. Horace, Horace Mann. Horace Mann, rather. Um, I, um, I thought to myself, I wonder where the, what do you want to be when you grow up came from? That, that we all had as kids, and that was always asked. And the way you were talking is like, wait a second. Like, I know in older times, not ancient times, just in older times, you weren't asked that question because you were probably going to do what your father was doing. You were probably going to continue his farm or his tailor shop. And there were exceptions, but it was not certainly not encouraged to think up for yourself what you want to be and go pursue that. Right? What a great question. It's a great question. And it's, a, it's also an accurate observation. There would have been a time when this question was not asked and it wouldn't have been thought to ask that question because it assumes that the question is a correct statement of how a child ought to see himself as well. And it, uh, I've traced it back and I, I think it, there's a good uh, basis for holding this. I hold it in, in the mm, late 18th century. And it's related to uh, something that Jordan Peterson, you mentioned his name earlier, thinks is essential to our human identity, namely the idea of autonomy. He goes on and on and on about autonomy. It's being so important that we hold on to autonomy. My research, I told you the story how I wanted to be a medievalist Renaissance scholar, I ended up being pushed by God, now how I see it in retrospect, to be an Enlightenment Romantics scholar, pushed me to exactly this point when I think things flip and go terribly wrong uh, in a way that I think is important for our time. Uh, and it's exactly on this point that we think that autonomy is the essence of human nature, but autonomy is the law of the self. The auto just means yourself and the nomos there is the law, the law of yourself. And the way that gets represented in literature, my area of specialism is in the portrait of the heroes of the time. And from this period onward, late 18th century, early 19th century, the heroes are almost invariably orphans. They have no parents. A parent, an orphan is, now you'll know this, in, in biblical understanding, but even throughout almost any culture, this is a pitiable state. You do not want to see yourself as an orphan because to, to be compared to an orphan is to be compared to somebody in a pitiable state. I mean, so much so that in scripture, it says that we need to look after the widows and orphans. They're in a, a difficult terribly difficult situation. They cannot fend for themselves. And yet in literature, from this period onward, the heroes are invariably orphans. And I can, I'll trot out some examples there. Look at all the Dickens novels. You can read the Brontes. You can read many of the Romantic authors where they are orphaned as well. You can move on through the 19th century. You can get into Canadian literature. Anne of Green Gables, who's a, an a 
orphan. You can get into superheroes who are invariably orphans. You can go to Harry Potter or James Bond or you name it. Almost any pop cultural icon. Now they're pop culture, but then, then it, this is this is again the the culture of the literate. They are presented as orphans. Why would that be? Because you don't see it before this period. It suddenly becomes not just a new thing, but the dominant thing, repeated over and over and over. Who do you want to be when you grow up? What a question. Why do I ask that question? Because the child, you're asking the child to think of themselves as somebody who's going to have to make of themselves what they may. And we're then going to celebrate that. Well, that is a new way of looking at things. And it's based, it's predicated on this ideal of autonomy and the idea that you are not, that you are your own person. You're not your parent's child. You are yourself. Whereas Jesus is Jesus bar Joseph. He's the son of Joseph. And you're going to get a genealogy. Even Jesus, who's the son of God, who's the son of God, is given an earthly human lineage in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3. We get, we're given two different genealogies, one which traces him to Abraham, the other all the way back to Adam. But in either case, even though he's God the son, he, he is not presented as an individual, as a novum, as something that of, of there's nothing like him ever. He has a human lineage. My goodness. And whose human lineage? Well, and one connects him to the great... Abraham, our father, the man of faith, the other to our first human parent. And he's connected thereby to the human race. He's a representative of that. He isn't just Jesus. He is the foremost representative of the human race. His race is our race. He is a hero in that sense, a genuine hero. He he, he, what happens to him is, a, is important for every one of us, even if we come from a non-Western culture, because it goes all the way back to Adam. That's the point of Luke 3. Um, so this is extraordinary. Well, so, but there you ask the question, where does education go wrong? Right there, right there at that point. I could point to various writers, whatever, but there's a shift in how we see ourselves. Now, is autonomy the same thing as personhood? And I, I studied this and I think, no, absolutely not. It is not the same thing. A person is a theological category, which we, give from, we get from the discussions of the Trinity and the, the church fathers. There are three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And by virtue of the fact that we are human and bear the image of God, Genesis 1, 26, 27, we also are persons, right? If, he, if we are in his, in his image and he is a person, that means ipso facto that we are also persons. Now, the difference between Jesus, Jesus and us is that we are made in Imago Dei, whereas Colossians 1.15 says that he is the Imago Dei. He's not in, he is. So there's a difference there. But so our identity then is found in him. And, and this is, for me, this is the fourth then thing, which was convincing to me, is that I found my identity more fully represented in Jesus and in a way that I would be proud of. Boy, would I wish that I were like that man. That is what I would aspire to be rather than me. And you know what? He has adopted me and I am in that image. He's given me credit for that, even though I certainly have done nothing to uh, measure up to that standard. Still, I've been, I've been by grace credited with that. And now I'm asked to live up to it and so forth. Well, you're really, you're emphasizing, if I'm understanding correctly, this, this wonderful connectiveness that we actually have that's been lost lost um and now we're all these um individuals you know there's a i think there's another conversation for uh legitimate autonomy and human responsibility and and you know who are we as individuals but going back to dr peterson he talks he says things like the individual is all there is and i think he's really missing something with that uh big time because he's a um, lost soul um well, you could you could talk to him directly, but um, I would be happy to do that. <laughs> so uh, there is this con connectiveness that goes all the way to God th through our our families of origin, you know. And we started with you coming to grips with your own family of origin, and there might be even more for you to explore there. What does that act? What does that actually mean? And then for your children, um, you know, in our own background, even you know, I won't get too deep into it in our Jewish background, we it, it there's so much diversity in among Jewish people and how we relate to our background, but it's it's a thing. It's really there. It's something that we we carry forward whether we 
we care about it or not. It, it, it's it, the um, our connection to our people is is so strong, and if we forget about it, then our enemies make us remember it, and it's you know it's it's all part of the the grand narrative uh, as revealed in, in in the scriptures. Um, so, you know, we're getting near the end of our time. I was hoping we're going to talk more, particularly about what parents can do in educating their children. But some of what you've brought up here, it sounds like the the issue at at hand is in our, in our society, in our culture, is we become so fragmented. Um, how? Well, certainly. The educating of our children can't be the only thing that we need to do. It's a big one, but you know there there are some people that think um, in a book something like uh, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, that that believers need to pull back from the society because there's no real hope for us within the society. I'm not convinced that's the way to go. Maybe, yeah, you're you're agreeing with me. Um, so there's more to what we need to do than a better educational model. Um, but can you take a couple of minutes before we end, um, you know, a word to parents? Um, and if you, if, you know, if you don't really have enough time at this point to get into as much as, as it, it, it needs to be, that, that's fine. But is there a, a word you can give to parents in the middle of this, um, our individualistic disconnectedness that, have, that is one of the reasons why we're so lost? How can we help our children navigate this world today? Well, I don't have time because it's such a big <laughs> question. <laughs> well, do you want to spend too much time talking about me? I'm not nearly as interesting as this topic, but... Um... Well, we'll see how people comment. I actually, I found the whole thing fascinating. I think okay. it's, you know, your, your life, like all of our lives, reflects the reality yeah. of, 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 of God and, and, and his story that he, that he calls us, it calls us into. Would you mm. be willing to come back? Well, another time yeah, yeah, of we'll course. get into yeah, that. Yeah, we can do it. And, and I'm happy to answer as well. I just, I don't think I'll do it in a satisfactory way, but. Oh, could you wet, how about wet our appetite? Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't buy Dreyer's uh, um, solution to the problem and I'm not even sure he buys it either. But I, I respect him. I've read some of his work, and I think that he's on to something there as well. And he he does speak to the civilizational darkness that we have now descended into. And I think he's correct in his judgment there. And he's been very strongly emphasizing something that I have intuited for a long time. Again, back to my studies as an undergrad, where I came across Hannah Arendt, famous Jewish thinker, and her study in totalitarianism and so forth. And I noted many of the same things that she was talking about were true even of Canada in the 1980s and the US and so forth. And there was another book by uh, Bloom, The uh, Closing of the American Mind. And he talked about the, the conditions uh, and even the beliefs of modern undergraduates being very much like those of the Weimar Republic. They, they, were, they affirmed certain things, um, but they, they almost had no standards for anything, um, no standards of judgment. Um, other than that they shouldn't judge. So it was all inclusive, it was all tolerant and so forth. And he said that these are exactly the same uh, sorts of things that you would have noted in Weimar Germany. I noted the same thing. So this is a deep problem. I do think that Christian education is a necessity. I do think it begins in the home. The Shema we talked about, or Ephesians 6 verse 4, where uh, children are told to bring, fathers are told to bring their children up in the paideia and nuthesia of the Lord idea being the word for culture or education, so a very holistic sense of uh, talking about God in every sphere. Um, but they need to start doing it themselves. This is the problem. If you are given this responsibility as parents, and it is upon you, because it is upon you, you, can't, you can delegate responsibility, but it's still on you. If somebody else does a bad job of educating your children, guess what? It's not on them. It's on you as fathers. It's on you. So if you send your kid there to a school and they do something that you don't want and you're very troubled by this, guess what? It's not their fault. Or, or, or it is, but ultimately it's going to come back on you. You're going to be held accountable for that because at, at the end of the day, the responsibility is given to children, uh, to parents 
and fathers in particular, and that is not revoked by your decision to give your children over to the public schools. So that just think about that very resolutely then, and th just think of the task that then confronts you as, as fathers, as parents. What are you going to have to do if you're sending your kids to the public schools and they're teaching them that things don't connect at all? You can do this subject area, this, but they, there's no connection of things. The, all things do not hold together in Christ. Christians believe that. They certainly don't hold that in our school system. They talk about different subject areas and none of them have anything to do with one another uh, whatsoever. And so people think that that there, there are disconnected facts and there is no coherence or meaning or purpose to our, to our learning whatsoever. Well, this is appalling. You wonder why children have a sense of despair and why suicide among the young is so high. It's because they think there is no purpose and meaning in life. And where would they, because they've never heard anything elsewhere uh, and to a, to a different uh, tune, even in, even in their churches. You just need to believe in Jesus. Give your life to Christ. Okay. I did that. There was an emotional appeal. I came forward. I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I said those words. I said it. I said it. I got baptized. Okay. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. I have no idea. Well, you should. There's a logic and a coherence to it. How does that apply? If you can't explain that as parents to your children, then you're, you are the problem. You are the problem here. And you can be the solution to your problem, however, by searching through the interconnectedness of things and the purpose and meaning and how Jesus does say the things that Jesus says about himself, that in him all things hold together, or Paul says of Jesus there, um, is actually true. So I think parents really need to be educating themselves in their faith and not wasting their time on social media or watching television or doing whatever else they do. Now, if you find that that's too much to do because you work too hard, then maybe you should think about Christian education. And when I say Christian education, I don't mean Christian schools that use the public school curriculum and are taught sometimes by not even Christian teachers, but they're in a so-called Christian school. This isn't Christian education. This is like this is a travesty. I mean, real Christian education of the sort that was sketched out by our conversation there. And there are schools like that opening up. And if there aren't one, then you, dads, moms, and your churches should get together and make them come about. It's too much for a small church to do. A coalition of churches with that shared commitment can do it and did do it historically, and we can recover that. But we have a big educational project, and it begins, however, with parents. Now, the problem for parents, they didn't get that education themselves. It's that much worse for their your kids. It is, it is, it is within your grasp to change that, I think. And, well, and, God, and God willing, he will make, it, make that so. And I believe he can make it so because the public system, let me say one last thing. Rod Dreher has a very doom and gloom portrait of the present, which is entirely accurate, but it is short-sighted because the public system, which he sees as oppressive, is also crashing down in ruins all around us, bankrupt, in, in, embittered, full of chaos and rage and offering no future to those in it and nobody likes it. The, the pagan schools in the ancient world ended up closing down because people no longer wanted their kids to go to those schools because they were so bad. That's where our schools are headed right now. And so we have an opportunity as a society, as a culture, as a Christian community to offer light in the midst of the darkness. You know, the, the foundation you laid right at the beginning Scott, just so important by putting the, the burden back where it belongs on the parents. And I wonder how many parents uh, think that um, somehow because of whatever happens in the school, happens in the school, that they don't bear that responsibility. But I, one illustration I like uh, is um, even when we have other people teaching our children, whether it's a, an institution or tutors or a friend, um, we're like the general contractors of our families. The parents are the general contractors. And we might contract out certain things. We contract out healthcare, for example, though there's yep. many things we should do by ourselves. Um, we are fundamentally responsible for their education. We contract out certain things. Um, but the general contractor, like if something goes wrong in the house and the plumbing's bad, the yeah. general contractor can't say to the, the home buyer, homeowner, oh, it was the plumber's fault. No. You may have to go talk to the plumber, but the general contractor bears 
the brunt of that responsibility. Yeah. So parents, however you do this, God it has given you that responsibility. And it's an honorable, holy responsibility that we have. It, you know, parenthood, we've raised 10 kids. It's not an easy job, but no one said it was supposed to be easy. And no. uh, But uh, God who's given us this job will also give us what we need to be able to do it. And it's the same thing as you were saying that many of us, I include myself, a lot of it was my fault. I did not get a good education growing up. I didn't care. Uh, my parents fully contracted that out. Um, yeah. I, as many people know, I come from a very uh, dysfunctional home. I had to learn all this stuff later on. But by God's grace, didn't have God it perfect. I'm still learning. But we can. What a, what a wonderful gift God's given us that we could learn things. Even when we're older, he's yeah. given us the ability to learn. And we, in our day, we have so many resources we could go to. So there's yeah. no excuse. We yeah. can access what we need. And, uh, you know, all the, the advice you gave there was very, very helpful in, in getting together with other people and our churches, whatever it is, to do what we need to do to help our kids and our society in teaching our children well. And, and perhaps we can't get together again soon. We can get into some more of those details. Well, I would take delight in that. It's been yeah. great, Alan. Yeah. So, Scott, thank you so much. Thank you. You said you don't often share about yourself, but I found it delightful and uh, really appreciate you opening your heart to, to me and to our, our viewers and listeners. So thank you so much for doing this. Before you go, if people want to get in touch with you, what should they do? Well, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, I think you mentioned that at the outset. That'll uh, go in the, the the link will go in the You'll description. You'll put it up there, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I teach at Tyndale, as you said, um, through my YouTube channel. I have the, so that I also have scottmasson.ca. Yeah. Uh, I also have a podcast called Paideia Today with a friend of mine, Bill Friesen. So is everything um, on your the, the Scott Mason website? scottmasson.ca did i say I it believe... wrong i knew i was gonna say i told you i was gonna say it wrong you, di you did tell me actually <laughs> so i'm glad that you you've done what you said you would do and uh <laughs> um yeah or uh, and and send me an email through that i think uh it goes through those those sorts of portals then gets me to, gets you to my private email and you can contact me that way yeah so say your and say I, your website address again for everybody it's just scottmasson.ca Okay, and I'll put that and, also in the description. Yeah, and I believe that has an email um, thing there. You can click on it and send me an email or whatever. Uh, Excellent. And, uh, well, again, Scott, thank you so much for doing this with me today. You're very welcome. So you can contact Scott at his website. The description will be below as well as the the uh, the. So the link will be in the description below, as well as the link to his YouTube channel. And there is a lot there for you to check out. Um, and so if you do have any questions for me, you could always contact me at comments at thinkingbiblically.org. Again, don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. Until next time, this is Alan Gilman with Thinking Biblically. Thinking Biblically.